I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Welcome to Study Hall, the podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about advertising. What's up, Study Hallers? Welcome back. Today we're talking about the third of five sections of Tim Wu's excellent book, The Attention Merchants. And this section is all about the third screen, right? The screen that watches you. TV, movies, they don't watch you. But the third screen, the computer screen, really has changed our attentional environment dramatically. And uh, this section, the third screen, is all about how computers sort of found a place in Western culture um, by doing a couple of really interesting things like demand engineering. And, and there was also some, some just sort of uh, serendipity that put computers together with huge gobs of money and funded its development. So we're going to get, we'll, we'll get into all of that. This is also a chapter about a massive disruption in the, uh, in our intentional environment and in the attention business models that exist in that attentional environment, right? You hear a lot about disruption. Uh, people will say things like, you know, that the ad blocker, who could I be talking about? The ad blocker is as big a deal as the Gutenberg Press. Well, the ad blocker isn't as big a deal as the Gutenberg Press, but the computer is. The computer is as big a deal as the, as the Gutenberg Press, and it's easy to forget that because, you know, we've kind of, it, it's 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 takeover of our consciousnesses and and that its takeover of our culture has been so complete that um, uh, this is the classic example of not seeing the forest for the trees. But the third section of this book is a really great history and an opportunity to think about how this state of affairs that seems so natural to us now, that's certainly my lived experience. I mean, I, I was a child when there were no computers, and then I remember my dad getting the, the TRS-80, and things just sort of took off from there. But I certainly remember a time when there were no computers, or computers were these sort of, you know, crazy... When I was in college, I had a K-Pro, which was... <laughs> allegedly portable. It weighed 23 pounds and I had to wrap it in a garbage bag every time I wanted to take it to the library. But, you know, it was portable. I took it to Scotland, believe it or not. Somehow got that thing through British Customs. Try that today. End up on the, end up on a list, I'm sure. Anyway, so enough, enough reminiscence from Rungi. Uh, we're going to, this, we're going to sort of think about that disruption as we, as we go through this, um, section and reflect on the fact that, that how powerful and interesting computers are as an attentional substrate, right? They can deliver and do just about anything. So whatever you want to pay attention to, you can probably find it on a computer. And Wu nods to this in the beginning so of the, of the chapter in his sort of preface to the uh, chapter. In his preface to the section, he sort of nods to this uh, with a quote. He says, the very plasticity would let it, computers, take audiences from television in ways other technologies could not. Absolutely right. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, chapter um, 14, email and the power of check-in. So this is kind of about demand engineering, and and it's a great story, right, as Wu does. Wu is, again, I've said this before, but he is just a master storyteller. Uh, he's, he's great at linking these what would be terribly dry and technical sections to people and making it uh, making it interesting. So another great reason to read the book if you're interested. So it's 1971 and there's this guy, Ray Tomlinson, who's working for a consulting group in DC. 
um, and they're trying to figure out how to use this thing called ARPANET, which is uh, which was built in, 19, in 1969 by the uh, I think by DARPA, and it was the proto internet, which of course I'm sure you know. But so they built a network, but they needed to find a way to make it useful. So this was demand engineering. They're classic advertising. They're looking at this thing they made, and they're thinking, how the hell are we going to get people to use this? So Tomlinson was using file was working with file transfer protocols, right? FTP. We all know the FTP sites, right? Um, so he was he was trying to engineer the first FTP sort of protocol, and then he had the idea. Well, why not instead of sending files, why don't we just send messages? And that was email. So he invented the at sign. Interesting. If anyone ever, that's something to pepper your conversation with. I'm sure riveting conversation at, at parties, for instance. Talk about. Do you know who made the at sign? Actually, I don't recommend you do that. So Tomlinson, as a demand engineer, had had created this first sort of the first powerful internet-mediated attention, call it substrate, email. And then we learn about Steve Lukasik, who was a director of DARPA and her, had an early portable email device. And it's it's actually pretty hilarious. I was talking earlier about my KPro, right, my monstrous KPro computer, which had a screen on it, by the way, that you could cover with your hand, right. I'm a medium-sized human male, and I could cover it with my hand, cover that first screen with my hand. Um, so Lukasik had this equally hilarious device he used to carry around with him, and he had to actually stick a phone receiver on it. And those of you who are my age will remember those kinds of, uh, those kinds of uh, modems, but he would stick that on there, and he would check his email. So he, was, he became, you know, in, in Wu's narrative, the first guy to ever have an email check-in. And then Wu gets into this very interesting... He uses this as a jump-off point for a very interesting discussion of psychology and operant conditioning, right? Which is what B.F. Skinner is all about. In fact, the Skinner box, I guess I learned, the technical term for a Skinner box is an operant conditioning chamber. And um, that's pretty much, you know, what the Internet is these days when you really think about it. So he gets into the operant discussion, Wu, uh, Wu does, in this part of the book. And, and it's very interesting. It's, and he, he kind of lines out the... the the research that shows that you don't need a reward every time, right? But once you're rewarded, um, you begin to alter your behavior, even if it's bad for you. And it's actually more effective if the reward is intermittent. So when you think about that in the way humans interact with each other naturally on the internet, and that'll become important later on, on, in chapter, uh, in chapter uh, 16, when, the way humans relate to each other on the internet sort of naturally, you're never going to get, you know, rigid interval reinforcement. You're always going to have variable interval reinforcement. And it turns out that that's the most effective way to get people to do things over and over again. In fact, Wu, very, uh, you know, another tribute to his um, ability as a thinker, he, he says, well, no one hunts cows for sport, right? And that's absolutely right. Nobody, if there's no challenge, right, we quickly lose interest. Maybe a better word is uncertainty. If there's no uncertainty, we lose interest. Now we understand email and how email started. We understand how people began to use email remotely, and this poor fellow Steve Lukasik was the first guy to ever wear the electronic shackle. Um, and then we start to understand why that is, right? And then we sort of get into, we get into this another funny story about a guy named Gary Thurick. Gary Thurick, to just to name and sort of shame him, was the first email spammer. So Gary had a computer demonstration he wanted to, to put on in Washington. And in order to publicize it, he sent an all caps unsolicited email 
uh, to a list of people, uh, to all the people in his email um, list. Uh, so that was interesting. Think about that next time you're uh, putting together your, your email copy. <laughs> you just write it in all caps. Just a screaming email. It was long, too. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into it, but it was, it was a long email, and it was, um, at, to, you know, by today's standards. And it was all caps. Hilarious. Uh, no visual hierarchy, by the way. There was no, there's, you look at it, even in the book, there's, it's just a wall of copies smacking you in the face. Very poorly designed, Gary. Um, Gary got his hand smacked by the Pentagon. Uh, the Pentagon did not like their attention being abused in this way, and he was made to promise. Someone called him from the Pentagon, yelled at him, and made him promise to never do it again. So, of course, the Pentagon, right, open attentional revolt. The Pentagon has better things to pay attention to than your stupid computer demonstration, Gary, so uh, you better knock it off. Pretty interesting, right? Um, and then and then Thurick, interestingly enough, uh, kind of owned it, you know, in a, in a pretty admirable way. He, he kind of, he's become... You know he's he's very open about his his role as the first email spammer, and um, you know he wrote a poem on the thirtieth anniversary of his uh, of his email, sort of taking credit for it. And so if you're ever in a bar with Gary Thurick, buy the buy the guy a drink, um, or or upbraid him for email spam that he invented. So and that's where the chapter ends, right? Um, these chapters are very short; they're very kind of punchy. Uh, but we're seeing the first tickle of the first the full-scale addiction we're now stuck in because computers, the Internet, now had a product, right? A demand-engineered product by young Ray Tomlinson that it could sell and people could get involved in. And so, you know, by the end of this story, by the end of this chapter, we have an Internet and the Internet has email on it and people are going to start to get... Um, People are going to start to get involved in email because, of course, as we all know, email is quite useful. So then we move on to chapter 15, which is called Invaders, which is all about video games. Hooray. My favorite. I didn't know. I, I knew hardly any of this uh, history. So if you're a, a video gamer um, and you're interested in knowing how this all came about, uh, Fallout 76 and whatnot, and Halo, and uh, Duke Nukem. And for even further back than that, this is a great chapter for you to read. So it turns out it's all thanks to a guy named Ralph Baer who made a thing called the Magnavox Odyssey. He was looking at computers and he was thinking, uh, sorry, he was looking at TVs and he was thinking, well, what could we do with this um, uh, other than just watch TV? And he very intelligently looked at a computer screen and said, this is actually a screen I could do a lot of stuff with if I get, or if I get downstream from the TV transmitter, I can use this thing to do all kinds of stuff if I link it up to a computer. And of course, video game, right? So here's the linking of serious attention getting power, games and fun with the computing industry. And it's like gas on a fire, right? Because now, in addition to email, which is a, which is a useful product, but probably would have been hard to commercialize, video games are a absolutely commercializable thing that they could sell using computers. So so now the technology has sort of met serious money and that serious money is going to get in there and drive advances in the technology, right? So that's how that's how this now we see the fire starting to build, starting to build. So Atari and Norman Bushnell make a uh, appearance here and they made a thing called Space War, um, which the interestingly the Atari engineers had been playing this game on the mainframes at, you know, the home office. And that became the first stand-up video game. They put a they put a housing around it, which all of us 
all of us know that you know that stand-up housing with the little controller and the buttons and whatnot. Um, and that was the first stand-up video game. Uh, they basically took something they'd all been playing themselves and uh, made it uh, quarter by quarter, uh, made money off it. So then came Space Invaders. So the Japanese kind of came out with Space Invaders, and then it was game on. By 82, Space Invaders was the highest-grossing entertainment product in the United States, any entertainment product in the United States, at $2 billion. All of it earned in quarters. Think about that. Right? And this is all analog. This is people feeding literal metal slugs into a slot on a machine and then playing a game. Uh, and they made $2 billion. So 8 billion quarters. Think about it that way. Then we get into home game consoles. And I won't bore you with the, you know, the, the various minutiae of the home game consoles, but the Borg's on its way to full control. Right? They have, there's another even bigger product, even bigger than email. And so now the hardware begins to get serious money behind it, and we get the march of home computing uh, power. And Moore's Law just begins to really pick up steam. And that, and interestingly, that's still going on today. When you mine Bitcoin, what do you use to mine Bitcoin? You use video graphics cards. Why? Because video graphics is, uh, these are some of the most powerful processors you can get your hands on. Why is that? Well, just have to look back to chapter 15. It's because playing games has such a powerful hold over our attention and is such a powerful economic generator. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to think about when you're reading chapter 15. So chapter 16 <clears throat> is called AOL Pulls Them In, and it's, it's a very interesting chapter about how computers and advertising kind of came together. Um, so the internet makes us all attention candidates, right? If not actual attention merchants, right? We're all on the internet. We all want people to pay attention. That's what social media is all about, right? We're attention candidates. And some of us, some of us are attention whores. And some of us are attention merchants, right? Thanks to, uh, thanks in large part to a company called America Online, which people all know. But there's a lot of interesting stuff about America Online that I think it's worth reminding ourselves about. And you can remind yourself by reading chapter 16. Uh, so here's a quick summary of chapter 16. So we start with Steve Case, who's the COA, COL, he's the COL, CEO of AOL, back in the pre-graphic interface days. So for those of you who aren't uh, uh, old like me, old, old-ish, I'm old in advertising years, I'm not old in actual human years, but uh, my old K-Pro that I was telling you about, that thing did not have a graphic interface, it was just green letters on a screen. And you could you could pull up you use your little floppy disks and this is heartbreaking. There was a there's a footnote in chapter 15 or rather excuse me chapter 16 explaining <laughs> what a floppy disk is. That really made me sad. Thanks a lot, Tim Wu. Um, anyway, there's a you use these floppy disks. You have a system disk and then you'd have a data disk and you boot up and blah, 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 took forever. You're taking disks out, putting disks back in, and uh, eventually you get to this screen and there's nothing on it but what we used to call the C prompt and you you'd kind of start from there and then if you had like I said if you were using WordStar which is what I used to use all the time not WorldStar but WordStar uh, which was actually a pretty damn good uh, word processing program better I would argue than the miserable bloatware we all use that I'm not gonna I'm not actually gonna name and CompuServe, or, I'm sorry, CompuServe, AOL was sort of started in that world, right? And then there was also CompuServe, 
which was owned by H&R Block, interestingly enough, and Prodigy, which was sort of the high-end one, and then Genie, which was owned by GE. And it's interesting to think about because, you know, the, you know, people all know the story of how Xerox first invented the graphic interface, right? But they weren't able to capitalize on it. And this is actually another point that Wu makes in his book, The Master Switch, which we're not going to get into now. But it's these, these big companies, um, for whatever reason, H&R Block, GE, you'd think they have all this money. And Prodigy, actually, which was owned by, I believe, Sears. You'd think they'd have all this money and all the smartest people were working for them. But they find themselves in this totally new, truly disruptive space, and they can't, they can't make it happen. The people who made it happen were these clowns at AOL. Um, who actually started out as the smallest, sort of least prepossessing uh, of all of these, right? If you're standing there in 1985 and somebody sort of explains to you, well, there's CompuServe, Prodigy, Genie, and AOL, you'd say, well, I'm sure it's going to be between Prodigy and Genie, right? Wrong. AOL totally won the day. So how did that happen, right? <clears throat> So the first thing to note is all these guys knew they were in the attention merchant space. So these guys understood the Ben Day model, right? They were, they understood like we are primarily in the business of getting people's eyeballs on our product and then selling those eyeballs. Everybody understood that. Prodigy took the, took the, um, took the high-end content route, right? So they had some very interesting, you know, they had made, they struck some very interesting deals with some very interesting content creators, right? And they used the Ben Day method of low price plus ads uh, to um, to bring people in, right? And they interestingly they were also looking to become a shopping network, but okay. And so here's what I was talking about before, right? How does a bunch of smart guys like Prodigy mess this up? They wanted a premium price for the uh, for the for the stuff you bought online. And Wu points out there was you know this is in the days when graphics were not tremendous, right? I mean it it took. It took a long time to download even basic graphics. Um, they wanted a premium price, and you couldn't tell what you were buying. So, hmm. And they had the right idea, but totally the wrong execution. And this is something for everybody who's in business to, to really think about. Uh, you can have a great idea, but if you there's even little things get done wrong, you're you know you might as well not even be in the race at all. Because who rem who remembers Prodigy these days, right? Hardly anybody. I, I didn't remember Prodigy until I read reread the book. I read the book and then I realized, oh yeah, yeah, I remember those guys. Sure. I, I won't do CompuServe and Genie too much just because they were sort of in the middle between Prodigy at the top end and AOL on the bottom end. But um, except for, <laughs> except one little quick note, CompuServe actually went and hired an ad agency to uh, put that put put out an ad uh, campaign for them and the and the and the tagline. Or the headline, I'm not sure. Wu doesn't show you the ad, but their their big line was, "You got to get this thing," which is I, I thought was hilarious because I mean, what what? How's that? A, that's a call to action, but is that a, what's the benefit there? Anyway, I think it just shows that it just underlines how you know this is how people act around a truly disruptive product nobody knows what to do with it this crazy hot potato comes flying through the window everybody wants to catch it but nobody knows what to do with it right including the geniuses on Madison Avenue who when delivered the CompuServe package of features and benefits <laughs> the best they could do is like throw up their hands and be like hey, it's great you ought to get it not that I do any better by the way 
uh, I'm sure if somebody were to walk in and, and show me some amazing new product that would totally turn the world upside down like computers did, I'd probably say something just as uh, ridiculous in hindsight. So if you're the copywriter that wrote that line, I, I, I'm not cracking on you. I, I just think it's a monument to how difficult to understand this whole, this whole thing was and how, how, what an insane ferment there was in computers you know, in the early 90s to you know, the early 2000s. So don't hunt me down and kill me. All right, thanks. So uh, let's get back to AOL. So AOL, right, so Prodigy, let's just sort of think this through. Prodigy is doing high-end content that they create and they're doing the Ben Day thing. They're trying to bring you in for a good price and then show you ads, right? The genius of AOL was they made users the content generators, right? And they reintroduce community. So let's read this quick quote here on page 202. As one employee, Randy Dean, later put it, we wanted our users to have these little epiphanies out there by themselves typing on their computer that they were part of something bigger, that technology did not have to be a cold place, and there was comfort out there. Remember... Last, uh, last time we were talking about Elvis on Ed Sullivan and we ran across that cultural commentator who said, you know, everybody was watching this experience, everybody was watching this, but it was a one-way experience. We were all atomized and there was no community. Well, AOL reintroduced community and that, that was their genius move. Wu goes through this kind of queasy discussion of like AOL chat rooms, which if you remember AOL chat rooms, you remember AOL chat rooms. I'm not going to get into it. Um, uh, but it's an amazing way. I mean, it was such a simple technology. It just shows the pa the power of a good idea can be can have the simplest of technology. But if it's a really good idea, the concept is there. People just gravitate to it. And the AOL the AOL chat rooms were couldn't have been couldn't have been simpler or lower tech, uh, you know, by today's standards. But they were wildly popular, and people used them for all sorts of things. And so finally, we get to uh, we get to the um, early 90s and AOL has won. So AOL in October of 1992 was part of this review in the Wall Street Journal between itself and Prodigy, right? Which uh, the Wall Street Re Journal referred to as online database services. Another really interesting cultural artifact, right? They didn't even get it right. Online database services, that's not what these are, Wall Street Journal. But, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's how crazy it was. So anyway, um, this guy Walt Mossberg, Walter Mossberg, in the um, writing in the Wall Street Journal said of Prodigy um, that it was organized more like a broadcast network than a common carrier of information. This is Wu talking. While he praised its news service, he ultimately found it seriously flawed. As he wrote, quote, this is quoting Mossberg, its content promises more than it delivers, end quote, while splatching, quote, distracting paid advertising across the bottom of many of the information screens, unquote. Really interesting commentary by Mossberg. So I think we can we can say in Mossberg's eyes in 1992, Prodigy didn't have the the attentional power it needed to justify the ad. So there's that's an interesting thing to think about. That there's there is some sort of ratio between attentional power of content and um, the efficacy of the ads that run on the content. Back to Wu and Mossberg. Okay, so this is Wu. AOL, in contrast, simply ran more smoothly. It's, quote, electronic mail system is sophisticated and easy to use. There's email again. And Mossberg concluded, quote, I see America online as the sophisticated wave of the future. So 
user-generated content. This is where it really made its bones. Um, and that's why we're still talking about it today. And that's why we have to deal with social media. That's why we have to deal with um, the guys and gals of Facebook and Google. And Instagram and Twitter and on and on and on and on and on. Because they have been the beneficiaries of the genius of Case and AOL of making people and community the uh, the attention substrate. And... and this culture we live in has never, never looked back, right? Once they win, right, they, they hire, AOL does, they hire a guy named Bob Pittman, who's a Methodist preacher's son. There's that, there's that uh, preacher man dynamic again. And a guy named Meyer Burlow, who has some hilarious quotes, um, which I'll read to you. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, just love that guy. I'm sure I would have liked him a tremendous amount um, had I worked with him. But uh, anyway, Bob Pittman and Meyer Burlow were brought in, and they were charged with kind of making sure that AOL um, monetized its attention. So they'd done a great job getting attention, and then now Pittman and Burlow were brought in to monetize that attention, and they did a pretty good job uh, until the end there. Under them, ad revenue came up to $2 billion, okay? And this is in early 90s money. Uh, but interestingly, you know, they couldn't, Wu tells this little story, they couldn't bring in the big companies, Coke and IBM, et cetera, didn't want any, anything to do with it. Again, you know, it, it, it's worth thinking about what happens when you have a disruptive idea. People turn their backs on it. You cannot get arrested. These guys could not get arrested at the big companies because there were, wow, no metrics. No metrics. There was no way to show that um, there was uh, an, a return on investment, right? So uh, they were stuck in that classic pitch situation where you've got a great idea, you know it's going to work. It is working, and then, you know, you sort of run into um, the analytics folks who, and who quite legitimately, and I'm not, I'm not cracking on them, I have a huge respect for analytics, and I prefer to run my campaigns with analytics, um, they just can't. They just can't feed it into their algorithms because there's there's just nothing to feed. So, you know, think about that. You know, next time you're in a pitch and your idea doesn't work, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's them because not because they're bad people or stupid, but because of the sort of imperatives of their position. Right? Interesting. So, so what do Meyer at Burlow and Bob Pittman do? They start. Um, unfortunately, they start they start really gouging people. And there's a really interesting discussion towards the end of chapter, uh, the, the, this chapter, where um, these obscure, now totally defunct, internet properties start getting into the wall. They called it the walled garden of AOL because AOL at that time, it wasn't an on-road to the, the actual internet, right? It was, a, it was a service that you go on and you sort of do all the, all the AOL stuff in AOL, kind of sort of like Facebook, kind of sort of like Facebook. And, you know, these dot-coms at the time, this is, this is before the dot-com crash, this is so late 90s, these dot-coms are desperate to show that they, are, um, they have that certain snap. And if you didn't live through it, it's hard, to, it's hard to believe how sort of shallow that analysis was. But they just needed to get on AOL because they needed to say they'd gotten on AOL, and that was, that was kind of all they needed to do. So they were paying tens of millions of dollars just to put ads on AOL. I mean, it, it, was, it was amazing. So AOL gouged the, the living daylights out of these new dot-coms, and 
and a bunch of them failed. Actually, you know, if you think about it, these guys, these dot-coms were paying enormous amounts of money for a relatively small number of eyeballs. So they were, their cost of acquisition, right? They, they were, they were way overpaying their cost of acquisition. And so in that way, you can sort of, if you analyze it from that perspective, they were engaging in terrible business practices because they, they, their cost of acquisition in, couldn't possibly have um, been justified if you would analyze it by like customer lifetime value, right? It's not going to happen. But they, you know, in those days, in the dot-com days, there was this sense that, well, we'll figure all that out when we get there. And of course, they never got there. So this was part of the, this is, this is very interesting, very interesting to read about the, the advertising analysis that went into these AOL deals because the, not unlike the stock market bubble, valuation went out the window. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. These were just totally overvalued eyeballs. And, but AOL was, AOL was able to drive these prices, and they did. So fair play to them. There's a funny story in there about um, uh, Meyer Burlow talking to Steve Case, and Case says, you know, kind of the NPR thing. He's like, well, you know, what bothers me about these ads is they're where customers can see them. And then... <laughs> Burlow goes, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> so, uh, great Madison Avenue perspective on business there. Um, it's, it's a beautiful little uh, vignette of Madison Avenue versus uh, NPR. And uh, I guess Madison Avenue won. As we always will, NPR. So back to AOL, you know, this, this gouging was still not enough. So they started doing this bookkeeping chicanery and they got it this is what got them in, in trouble with the accounting stuff and on the back of this ad fraud um and accounting fraud as well they got to a 160 billion dollar market valuation right three times the valuation of gm at 56 billion at the time and then of course it all came crashing down so these three chapters, while they're short, super short, they're they're a really really important part of the history of um, our culture, and the history, and, and a great insight into advertising. Just one last thing about AOL. I mean, this was the beginning. When you, you know, to my eye, this was the beginning of, you know, digital advertising's really unfortunate problem with fraud. Um, they've these guys have. As a group, I'm not making a statement about any individual people, but as a group, you know, digital advertising has kind of really never been on the level. Um, and they're just now starting, you know, there's been this huge, I guess, call it 20-year struggle to get uh, some firm grasp of what's going on with digital advertising. And, and it's been complicated by this chaffing of um, unscrupulous people who are, who are um, just after the dollars. Yeah, and I think you could argue that that was the case with AOL at the end. They were just at, they were just, it's just greed run wild, um, which is unfortunate because they, you know, it brought down a, it brought down a, it was a brilliant idea. It was a brilliant insight to make people the subject of our attention. It, it sort of brought us back full circle and, and, you know, you have to give them kudos. They restored community to our culture. Whatever you think about, you know, anything from Twitter to 4chan to, uh, I don't know, YouTube, there's a sense of community online that, you know, looking at this book, reading this book, and thinking back on my own life, there was definitely lacking in the, in the you know, 
the media world of the late, call it the late 80s. And, you know, whatever you think of that, whatever you think of sort of having a, uh, a banner ad on your community, uh, AOL really, I think it was a brilliant accident or a brilliant insight. I don't know. I mean, it's not really clear to me what, um, whether it was an accident or an insight. But they, it, it happened on their watch in their company, and I think they deserve a, a you know, I think that that outweighs unfor- that outweighs the unfortunate um, kind of end that they they went through. And that that's that, and that's also an interesting. We're not going to get into the uh, their hookup with Time Warner, but um, that was a uh, that's a very interesting story. If you want to do a little research on that. Anyway, so uh, that's the end of this study hall. I can't believe it. I'm pretty sure this is under an hour, and I'm very proud of myself uh, for having brought it in under an hour. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Veloso for the music and say sorry about the editing I did it myself. Study hall is sponsored by Douglas & Runke, advertising and marketing consultancy. See you next time.